Welcome to Renegade Inc., the show which allows us to think differently. Many people are astonished to learn that much of the economics taught at all Ivy League universities today are based on junk ideas. But more harmful is that practicing mainstream economists vindicate their own shortcomings and incomplete models by blaming individuals, wider society and reality for not measuring up to their inhuman theories. As mainstream economists continue in vain to try and make the world fit into their peculiar models, there is a cohort of heterodox economists who have steadfastly resisted this alternative reality. They're quietly rebuilding the dismal science so it reflects the real world. One of them is Professor Michael Hudson. His latest work calls out the Orwellian language and doublethink that the mainstream economists have been hiding behind for decades. J is for Junk Economics is an important book that restores the original meaning of hijack words and concepts so we can have a better chance of restoring social order. I went to one of New York's greatest bars, Pete's Tavern, to catch up with Michael Hudson, one of the world's best economists. The common refrain that you hear is that economics has failed. And I put it to you that the current economic paradigm, neoliberalism, it hasn't failed at all. It's worked perfectly according to the rules that it's been set on. Well, it's a cover story. And the idea of neoliberal economics is to create a parallel universe that seems plausible and seems that it would work uh, very nicely if the world were that way, but it doesn't have a relationship to the real world. So the function of neoliberal economics is to distract attention from how the economy really works, why it's polarizing, and why people are having to work harder and harder despite the fact that productivity is going up, and why the economy is polarizing between the 1% and the rest of the economy. And the 99, as they're yes. called. That cognitive dissonance, it's really difficult for people, isn't it? There have been many economists who have explained the world. Everyone from uh, Adam Smith through uh, even Malthus and Ricardo uh, had the basic concepts of value and price theory. Uh, John Stuart Mill gets even better. Marx gets even better. Uh, he was a little optimistic about where capitalism was going. And then Thorstein Veblen caps it off, and also people that American I haven't heard very much of, like the institutionalists, Simon Patton, for instance, the first professor of economics at America's first business school, the Wharton School, who became uh, the intellectual uh, mentor of economics turning into sociology uh, early in the 20th century. There is an enormous amount of analysis, all of it based on history, on uh, empirical analysis, on statistical analysis, uh, and all of that is excluded from the curriculum. So there's no way to fit economic reality into the academic curriculum of neoclassical economics. Without becoming conspiratorial about this, because that's the uh, charge that's often leveled at people. The, the, the amnesia that's gone on with the, or the selective amnesia that the neoliberals have peddled, just blocking out great swathes of economic history, is that deliberate? Or, and is that the cover story that you're talking about? It's a result of the lobbying process. Uh, the business interests who fund the major universities, the business schools, and the economics department want uh, an economic doctrine that celebrate them, not uh, criticize them. And certainly, uh, you, when you have the University of Chicago's monetarist, uh, that's very deliberately a special pleading, uh, a lobbying interest for the financial interests and for the economies financialization. And uh, people who criticize financialization, for instance, modern monetary theorists, uh, find that 
they can't get uh, published in the major refereed journals, and without that, they can't get promoted within academia. So uh, it's systematically detouring uh, students away from economic reality. So when I was teaching at the New School already 50 years ago, uh, students uh, were dropping out of economics, the graduate uh, students, because they couldn't fit reality into the curriculum. But that's the point, isn't it, with neoliberalism, th that you can't shoehorn reality into these models. It's, it's actually impossible, however much they tried. And people like Alan Greenspan, who I know you sacked, well done, at some point in your career, when he sat there and he said, I was shocked. Those of us who have looked to the self-interest of lending institutions to protect shareholders' equity, myself especially, are in a state of shocked disbelief. He shouldn't have been shocked, should he? He shouldn't have been shocked that this derailed so badly and actually he wasn't the man that knew. Assuming he was really shocked and didn't just say that he was shocked. I mean, he had to say he was shocked. He couldn't say, I knew it would happen, but what the hell, they paid me to do it. <laughs> and because that's the point, isn't it? In, in one of his, um, I think it's in his dissertation, he alludes to the fact that um, housing bubbles create this kind of social damage, but all that's been hushed up. He knew who paid him, and uh, when I was on Wall Street in the 1960s, banks were afraid to hire him because he was known for saying whatever the client wanted to be said. So he's a public relations person, and the fact is that's what economics is. Economics is taught in the universities as public relations for uh, the financial interests and for the corporate sector. And that's why underlying this theory, it's a theory of how an economy would work without government. Uh, any governmental uh, regulation or taxation is looked at as a burden. There is no idea of a mixed economy. So basically all of this economic tendency was traumatized by socialism, by Marxism, and they said, we'll say how an economy doesn't need a government, and if corporations run the economy and banks run the corporations, everything will all turn out optimum. And uh, the optimum means no choice at all, but the way that we're doing it. Wow. I mean, insofar as intellectual capture, they've done a brilliant job. It's intellectual capture, but also excluding any intellectuals who won't be captured. If you don't follow the party line in economics, you're not going to get promoted at a university. Obviously, uh, at uh, University of Missouri at Kansas City, we teach something else, but the graduates really have problems getting jobs in the rest of ac Understandably. academia. Understandably. Where does all this end? In a crisis uh, of... Uh, but we haven't, we haven't got out of the 08 crisis. Right. So far, we're in a slow crash. And it may end with the crash going down and down. And as long as people think that uh, the status quo is the product of natural law, uh, then they'll think if they somehow fail to pay their rent, if they fail to save up for their retirement, uh, if they're broke and have to go deeper and deeper into debt, that it's their fault. And they personalize that failure. Yes. They think, well, if the economy is supposed to be growing, why aren't I growing? I'm left out. It must be my fault. And uh, so you have a psychological depression going along with the economics depression. You have, uh, especially uh, in white working class people in Americans, the death rates going up, the suicide rates going up, the drug abuse is going up. So all the social uh, indicators, socioeconomic indicators, are all going in the wrong direction. Meanwhile, all the profits um, and, and revenues for the 1% are going in the, quote, right direction.
Right. It's not pro Remember, rich people don't make profit. Only the little people pay taxes. If you make a profit, you have to pay a tax on it. Uh, so the rich people make capital gains, uh, or their profits are all made by their affiliates offshore. Ostensibly, they don't have any tax-declarable profits at all. There was an innocuous, seemingly innocuous act by a man called John Bates Clark. And John Bates Clark said there's no difference between earned and unearned income. Uh, and now when we're talking about the 1% or the elites and um, talking about capital gains uh, and versus profits, that seemingly innocuous act of saying there's no difference between earned and unearned income has had catastrophic effects, hasn't it? Well, it wasn't so innocuous. The focal point of classical economics, of value and price theory, was to distinguish between the prices of goods and the actual cost value. And the difference was economic rent. Uh, value plus rent equals price. And uh, the idea was that the landlord class, the monopolists, and the bankers didn't really earn their income. They just uh, made money, as John Stuart Mill said, in their sleep. Uh, they were coupon clippers if they were financial. They, were, they inherited uh, wealth, and that was a charge on society. Uh, John Bates Clark said, everybody earns whatever they make. Therefore, you should add uh, whatever the, the landlords get and the banks get uh, to the gross domestic product, because by definition, whatever they earn is their contribution uh, to product. So it's a wonderful circular reasoning. There's no such thing as economic parasitism. There's no such thing as a rentier. There are no such things as unearned income. One of the amazing things about being back in New York, I think I was here a year ago, is an exponential rise in homelessness I've seen. Um, the real estate sector, specifically retail, has been, from what I can see, absolutely battered. Um, and the inequality, even though this is anecdotal and only a, a, a feeling that I have, is, is rising quicker than anything. When you look around, what's happening in the real estate market in New York? Is this the division again between the 99 and the 1 percent? Well, the average rent in New York is $4,500 a month. That's the average. In order to pay that $4,500 a month, you have to be in the uh, 1% uh, 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 and to do it, and not many people are. Or you have to be a foreigner who's come and just bought a, uh, uh, a house in New York in, for when the revolution comes in your country or whatever happens. There's a lot of absentee ownership in New York, a lot of pro uh, properties owned by people who don't live here. So uh, there's, there's really nowhere for uh, industry or for people who actually uh, work in a field where they make something that competes with other countries. There's no way that a, a New Yorker can compete with uh, people in other cities or elsewhere in the world when you have to cover a rent of $4,500 a month. Which has driven all the wealth creating industries out of town. Yes, this used to be a manufacturing center in New York. There used to be, a, uh, it was an electronic center, uh, it was producing things and for the last hundred years the real estate interests uh, have uh, developed a plan of New York. Uh, Bob Fitch discussed this in the assassination of New York. They deliberately deindustrialized in order to gentrify. New York. So New York has been gentrified, uh, and they look at that as economic growth, but what that means is it's uh, unable to be part of the production economy. It can only be part of the siphoning off economy, the financial sector. 
Is it any surprise that your current president is a real estate magnet? That's the easiest way to make money. And uh, in fact, real estate has been how most of the middle class uh, accumulated its money after World War II uh, and is now being impoverished by having to go uh, into debt uh, to buy property. Uh, but the property is no longer rising in value, giving them the free lunch of capital gains uh, that they enjoyed between uh, uh, 1945 and uh, about 1995. You talk about uh, the role of the rentier uh, in J is for Junk Economics, your new book. Um, just describe the rentier for us, if you will. A rentier is someone who lives on economic rent uh, by uh, either being a landlord uh, or being a monopolist and charging a higher price than uh, it costs to produce a good, uh, or uh, a financial uh, a banker who simply can create credit on a computer and charge interest for it. So a rentier is uh, someone that is not technologically necessary for society. Uh, you, for instance, most societies have the same technology. Soviet Russia, the United States, China, Europe, they all had the same technology, but they all had a, uh, a different organization of real estate and banking, and hence rent and interest uh, and anti-monopoly rules. So uh, the least regulated economy became the most uh, parasite-ridden, where you had an overclass that didn't work, that didn't produce goods and services, but just charged for housing, charged uh, for money management, uh, charged for m uh, monopoly goods, and uh, that's what the economy is turning into. And in a way, it's a neo-feudal economy. What does neo-feudalism mean? Because I know you define it in, in the book. Describe neo-feudalism. Well, it means where uh, people control the economy, uh, not necessarily by militarily uh, speaking, but where everybody in the economy, in order to break even, has to pay an enormous, uh, almost all of their income, to the people who possess property. In feudalism, this was the landlords. But today, uh, it's not only the landlords, it's the bankers behind the landlords, and it's the uh, uh, monopolists. Welcome back to Renegade Inc., the show that allows us to think differently. Before we talk more with Michael Hudson, let's have a look at our favorite tweets in this week's Renegade Inc. Index. First up, we have a tweet from Riley Kirby. Uh, economics is like another language to me. Unfortunately, there's no econ option on Google Translate. Next, we have one from My Knitting Wall. Was recently in New York. So sad to see so many homeless, unemployed, sick people in such a rich country. Next, uh, from Sutton Red Forever. Anyone managed to catch a drop from the trickle down yet? Nope. Me neither, and that image uh, is piping all that money and wealth to Panama. Next from Brian Kavanagh, yes, uh, the 0.1% live off the private capture of unearned income or economic rent, but isn't that what they call socialism? Next up from Sarah Adala, uh, remember that time Obama decried fat cap bankers on Wall Street? Yeah. Uh, well, now he gets paid by them. And finally, from Deer Hoof, this is the image Norwegian Air is using to denote the appeal of vacationing in America. We present it without comment. Our book of the week this week has to be J is for Junk Economics by Professor Michael Hudson. Uh, as you're a well-read crowd, you should know that you shouldn't ever judge a book by its cover, but it's particularly relevant in this case. The contents of this tome are excellent. The cover, yeah. It's a little to be desired. Adam Smith was the godfather of classical economics. But since its publication, his work has been used as a political football, financiers twisting his words to suit them. 
Lord Griffiths advocates ruthless individualism to push this idea that if bankers get rich, then we get rich too, through a process known as trickle-down economics, or horse and sparrow theory. If you feed the horse enough oats, some will pass through to the road for the sparrows. The idea is that extreme wealth concentrated on a small minority will eventually trickle down to everyone else. But it doesn't work. Because by the time the money reaches the people at the bottom of our money pyramid, it's lost its purchasing power. Now, uh, a decade on from uh, one of the biggest financial bailouts in history and looking around after the dust has settled, it doesn't seem that Main Street America got a particularly good deal. Whilst we were talking in New York, I asked Professor Michael Hudson to cut through the media spin and tell us what really happened when the difficult decisions had to be made about who should pick up the tab for Wall Street's recklessness. The Federal Reserve said, we have a choice. They went to President Obama. Who do we save, the banks or the economy? He said, save my constituency, the banks. They're the people who paid for my political campaign. Forget the economy. And his role, as he put it, uh, was to stand between the banks and the mob with pitchforks. He called the people who voted for him the mob with pitchforks, uh, and he denigrated them and just uh, uh, made fun of them be, uh, before the bankers and said, don't worry, I can, I can bamboozle them uh, and deliver them to you. And that was his job, and that's the job of the Democratic Party, and that's why people finally voted against uh, Hillary and thought that bad as Trump is, he's the lesser evil. My God, that's incredible damning indictment of um, Obama. Yes, just remember that Trump was the lesser evil. Will Obama's legacy be, when we get far enough away, when history really reflects, will it be that this is the guy that bailed out Wall Street, not Main Street? Yes, that's the most important legacy, that uh, he said he was going to uh, protect the homeowners and 10 million American families were foreclosed upon. He broke every promise he made, but his legacy, of course, is Donald Trump. It's um, no coincidence that we are sitting in Pete's Tavern in the Prohibition era. This here was a speakeasy, right? And uh, the front of this bar was a flower shop. You used to be able to come through the fridge to get into here and then you could have a drink and talk openly. What you've actually done um, from Prohibition times to now, about uh, 100 years on, let's say about a century, is you've created something which allows people to speak easy again about economics mm -hmm. because you've actually cut through, can I say, all the crap. Well, that was my intention. Thank you. Um, and the language that has been used to date has been so telling. And the doublethink that you reference a lot in the book, the Orwellian doublethink and doublespeak, reversing that, it mustn't have been an easy feat, or was it? Uh, well, I originally uh, used most of these words in explaining my long uh, theory and my, my general theory of how the economy works. Uh, but People asked me, well, wait a minute, you're using words in a different language, a different way than we see them in the public press. Rent, disposable personal income. And I thought, wait a minute, just the parts themselves, each individual part. If you see uh, how the press uses disposable personal income and what it actually is, uh, how the press talks about equilibrium and what's really happening, it could show how uh, the uh, neoliberal vocabulary doesn't work and it's basically a lobbying effort by uh, the banks in the corporate sector uh, to convince people that uh, it's their fault if they're poor, not the way the economy is malstructured. And is there a Stockholm syndrome to all this? Because does man on the street, woman on the street think, 
uh, actually, if the 1% keep getting rich, I too will, and I'll sort of fall in love with my kidnapper. It's not simply the 1%. Uh, you had uh, uh, what really lost the election for Hillary was when she came in and she said, look at uh, how GDP, gross domestic product, has grown in the last eight years. Aren't you better off now than you were <laughs> eight years ago, thanks to Obama? And, and all of the growth, all of the gross uh, in uh, domestic income had gone to the five percent. The ninety-five percent were not better off, right. and they said, "Wait a minute, who is she talking to? Who is the we she means? Uh, who is the uh, the we was her campaign contributors? The five percent uh, and uh, the ninety-five percent finally said, "This is it. If she thinks I'm better off after eight years of Obama." I'm voting for Donald Trump. <laughs> you should talk about bubbles. She lives in one, right? Yeah. Um, should she stay in the woods, do you think? I hope so, and be eat, devoured by the, uh, by the bears. Uh, unfortunately, she said she was going to come out of the woods, and uh, even Bill Maher, her supporter, uh, gave a big uh, uh, presentation uh, on this Friday show saying, Hillary, get back in the woods. Okay. Don't come out. <laughs> uh, but the fact is, uh, you have to get rid not only of Hillary, but of the banking class, the Wall Street class that controls the Democratic Party and knew that they would lose with Hillary uh, and they would win with Bernie Sanders. Let's get back to this language thing. J.S. for Junk Economics. I think one of the, the points at the heart of it is this free market economics. Free market economics. Untangle this for us. Well, here's another Orwellian doublethink. To the classical economists, a free market was a market free of landlords, free of predatory bankers, and free of monopolists. It was where uh, a market in which people were paid according to what they actually produced. But now, uh, over the last hundred years, and uh, the Chicago School uh, libertarians say a free market is a market without any government interference. Uh, it's a market free for the rentiers. It's a market free for landlords to charge whatever they want. Free for banks to charge whatever they want and we're not going to throw a single banker in jail because that wouldn't be a free market. A uh, free market is free for the health insurance industry to uh, make uh, up to 13% of the whole GDP uh, charge whatever they want as monopolists. So uh, the whole meaning of the words has been reversed. We're living in Orwell's 1984 when it comes to economic terminology. But upholding this status quo um, and going through this idea of Tina, you know, there is no alternative, which is very much the Thatcherite, and um, actually I think probably goes back to Pinochet. Uh, That's exactly right. Yeah. That, the free market uh, ideal is uh, in order to have this kind of free market, you have to prevent any alternative. You have to prevent it by military force if necessary, and of course that's what the Chicago boys did in Chile. Uh, there was a, a mass assassination of labor uh, leaders. Uh, they closed every economics department in Chile except for the uh, Catholic University. Uh, you can't have intellectual freedom and a free market neoliberal style. You have to be uh, uh, totalitarian in order to impose uh, the kind of free market that uh, the Republicans and the Chicago boys want. Let's get to the illusion of choice. Because if neoliberalism is yes. going to die, um, you've got a red and a blue. <laughs> or yes, yes please, and yes thank you. What does that mean? The choice is between yes yeah, to your policies, yes please to the exist status quo, and yes thank you to the status quo. <laughs> the, but as WB8 said, the center can't hold. And the center isn't holding. You're having uh, a polarization between the 1% and the 99% that are uh, reduced 
into a state of debt peonage, basically, where all of the income they earn has to go just to break even yeah. by paying the banks, the landlords, and the insurance companies. But here's the point on rent seekers, rentier. The reason why they fight so hard for their life is because they can't innovate, they can't create real wealth, they can't create products that innovate or add value to the real economy. So it's logical, is it not, that the rent seeker would fight the dirtiest fight to keep that monopoly position. They actually could add value and produce, but it's so much easier and more remunerative uh, simply to do a ripoff, to uh, make money by lending to people and make them do the work, uh, make money by buying real estate and just charging more, make money by borrowing money and taking over a company and uh, f uh, firing uh, uh, a lot of workers, outsourcing, uh, taking the a pension fund, it's easier just to take than to produce. And uh, so it's a policy choice. When you look at the developed West, it, certainly America, it looks almost like a Roman tragedy. It's exactly like uh, Rome in the sense that uh, the creditors took over. And when the creditors take, took over, uh, one of the things they did in 133 BC, they killed all the uh, pro-creditor interests. They killed all the Democrats, uh, killed the Gracchi, and for 100 years you had a civil war. Uh, the Americans have maintained uh, their role in Latin America by backing dictators, by assassination squads, by uh, the special team. Uh, it's, it's polarizing because all the, the uh, oligarchs took all the money they made financially and they put it into land and they put it into monopolies and they put it into military power and all they had left was military power and the power to destroy other countries like they did in Asia Minor and the other colonies that they uh, looted uh, and that's all America's left with today militarily we can bomb anyone like we've bombed Libya and Syria uh, and Iraq uh, but it's impossible to invade the country because you're not going to have a, a land army uh, all you can do is threaten and destroy and that's uh, the oligarchy's uh, foreign policy. That's it from Renegade Inc. this week. You can drop the team a mail, studio at renegadeinc.com or tweet us at Renegade Inc. We'd love to hear from you. Join us next week for more insight from those people who are thinking differently. But until then, stay curious.